Would you give a warm Purpose Church PFB welcome to Dr. Hugh Ross as he comes uh, to share with us here today. Very good, honey. Thank you. And now forgive me if you were at the 8.30 service because uh, we're going to ask a couple of similar questions right here at the beginning because we want everybody to hear them. But the most burning question of our time was, Dr. Ross, is there scientific evidence uh, that not having hair indicates greater intelligence and, uh, and wisdom? And you had a, a beautiful Bible verse that I want you to share with everyone here. Well, it's Leviticus 13.40. If okay. a man is bald, he is clean. Yeah, clean. You know, clean. Yeah. <laughs> Clean is as good as smart, so I, I like that very, very much. Well, we, tell us your story. Okay, how did you, first of all, just get interested in astronomy as a young boy? Well, uh, I was always curious about what I was seeing around me. My parents said I was born a scientist. Uh, and at age seven, I asked them, Mom, Dad, are the stars hot? They said, yes, they're hot. I said, why are they hot? And they looked at me and said, you better go to the library. And so they gave me bus fare. I went to the Vancouver Public Library and came home with five textbooks in astronomy. And every weekend I would get another five. And I knew from the at age... At the age of seven. At the age five of seven. Five astronomy books per week. Okay, very good. And were they comic book things or were they were regular uh, textbooks? Because okay, that's what I was getting at age seven. So. so from the age of eight onwards, I knew my future career would lie in astrophysics. And uh, in fact, every year I would look at a separate subdiscipline of astronomy and study it in some depth. And, uh, you know, I didn't know any Christians growing up. My parents yeah, weren't Christians. that's interesting because the stereotype is whatever you grew up as, you just look for reasons to believe what you already believe. But you never really met a Christian until later on, is that right? Well, both my parents were convinced there was no such thing as eternal life. But they were moral and uh, wanted me to grow up in a moral. Uh, so I appreciated the moral training they gave me. Uh, kept me out of a lot of trouble. Uh, but... Um, no, I didn't get to really have a spiritual conversation with a Christian until I showed up at the Caltech campus to do research on quasars. Uh, so for 27 years, you know, I met Christians, but I never really got to talk to them. Um, but I did get to see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years of age. <laughs> I was going to say, they're behind the glass at the Vancouver Zoo or whatever. No, not at the zoo. Uh, <laughs> But uh, these were two businessmen that came into our public school, put two boxes on our teacher's desk, and left without saying a single word. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles, and we're all invited to take one, and every one of us did take one. And I still carry that Gideon Bible that wow. I got when I was 11 years of age. Wow. Wow. And uh, you know, I didn't touch it uh, until I was 17. And what motivated me to pick it up was at age 16, I spent a year studying cosmology the origin and history of the universe. And that's when there was a big debate. Is it steady state? Is it a big bang? Is it an oscillating universe like the Hindus teach? And realized at that time that the evidence was heavily favoring big bang. And I knew if it was big bang, there was a beginning. And there was a beginner to explain that beginning. And so that's when I began to look at the different religions of the world and their holy books, different philosophical systems, to see if anything in there was matching what I was seeing in the universe. And uh, I left the Bible to the very end because I wanted to, you know, kind of go after the easy stuff. It was quite easy to prove that, you know, the Hindu Vedas, the Quran, the Buddhist commentaries were not fitting uh, what I was seeing in the universe. But eventually I did pick up this Bible and began to go through it. 
and saw how different it was. I mean, the other holy books are basically vague, esoteric poetry with this air of intellectual snobbery. If you're not one of the great enlightened ones, you're going to be clued out. What I saw in this book was very different. Everything was clear and direct and ready for open investigation. It was the only book I picked up that commanded objective testing. It was also the only book that showed me how to put things to the test. And as a young scientist, hey, test, that's what I want to do. So I spent 18 months going through this book, putting it to the test, and looking for a provable error or contradiction. And I did find things I didn't understand, but I could not find a single provable error or contradiction. Instead, I found hundreds of places in the Bible uh, where it predicted future scientific discoveries, and what really blew me away as an astronomy student, all the fundamentals of Big Bang cosmology were taught in this book thousands of years before any scientists even dreamed that the universe may have those characteristics. I mean, not until the 20th century uh, did anybody talk about an expanding universe. Six different Bible authors speak about the expansion of the universe, speak about the universe having a space-time beginning. I mean, the other religions teach that God creates within space and time that eternally exists. But many places in the Bible tells us space and time do not exist until God creates the universe and how God was active before space and time even existed. And then speaks about how the universe has constant laws of physics where God says, I don't change. Proof that I don't change, look at the physics. It doesn't change. And then one of those physical laws is a pervasive law of decay. Well, as a physics student, if you've got the universe expanding from a space-time beginning where the laws of physics don't change, and one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, the universe, therefore, must get colder and colder in a highly predictable way. And we astronomers actually measure the past temperatures of the universe. And what we measure perfectly fits with what the Bible declared thousands of years ago. And so this persuaded me that this book couldn't be just simply the work of human beings. The only way it can be that accurate in science and have that kind of predictive power is if the one who created the universe inspired these Bible authors to write what they did. And, you know, this is a Gideon Bible. What I appreciate about the Gideons, they put two pages in every one of their Bibles that tell you what to do once you become persuaded that God exists and that God has inspired the words of this book. And the first thing they tell you is, number one, you're not perfect, but God demands perfection. You know that God demands perfection because of the way your conscience operates. And I said, well, that's right. And uh, then it also makes the point that, uh, you know, the creator of the universe came here to planet Earth, died and rose from the dead so that he could trade his moral perfection for our moral imperfection. And I said, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, but I also appreciate the fact that they made the point. The creator of the universe knows better than you and I what's best for us. And it only makes rational sense to put him in charge of our life, make him the master of our life. And the Gideons don't let you off the hook. They've got a place for you to sign your name and date it, uh, giving your commitment to your life in Jesus Christ. So I did that very thing. And, uh, you know, 
Immediately, I began to experience desires I never had before. I began to understand things in the Bible I couldn't understand before. And I also saw God bringing people to me to hear the reasons that I had developed for my Christian faith. And I've been, that's what really eventually led me to found reasons to believe. There's a lot of people that need reasons. God has given us the reasons. And so our role at Reasons to Believe is to equip people with those things so that they can be effective in leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. Forgive me for getting you to tell this story again, but I love the Gideons. My dad was a Gideon. My grandfather Mm -hmm. was an alcoholic Irish immigrant boxer, you know. I know you look at me and you think, oh, he must have boxing genes in him somewhere, you know. And so, uh, and he came to Christ, became the head of president of the Gideons for the state of Missouri. Um, But tell me that other, tell everybody uh, this service, that story about speaking to physicists in the Soviet Union. Well, there's a backstory and then a later story. Tell that story. Well, it was back in the 1980s, and I've done a number of fundraisers for the Gideons. Um, And I did one in Santa Barbara where we were raising money for uh, Russian Bibles. And we raised over $35,000. But it was a couple years after that that I had been invited by the Soviet government to come and speak to their scientists. Now, their scientists travel around the world. They knew they couldn't control the minds of their scientists. So I was actually paid by the Soviet government to give lectures on scientific evidence for God, but I could only speak to scientists. So I was in this hall with 700 uh, uh, physicists in Moscow and giving them scientific evidence for the God of the Bible. Interesting, I was giving the lecture in a hall of scientific atheism. So, <laughs> uh, but after my talk, one of the physicists said, could you please tell us how you came to faith in Christ? So I gave my Gideon testimony, and then I gave an invitation And I said, if you prayed with me to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today, would you indicate that by putting your name on a piece of paper and sending it up here to the front? I was not aware there was a paper shortage in the Soviet Union. People were scrambling, trying to find bits and pieces of paper, ripping them up into tiny pieces so they could write their name on. It's clear that at least 95% of those physicists gave their life to Christ that day. That is such a great you know... At the back of the auditorium, there were two men that were standing for the whole time, and I saw them smile. They were Gideons, and they had a Bible to give to every one of those Russian physicists. Wow, wow. And they told me, those are the Bibles that the fundraiser in Santa Barbara paid for. Wow, isn't that a great... And and we're going to get into new topics here in a second, but you know, there's sometimes we think, oh... Um, the scientists are just not that open to the, the things of God. But you said something fascinating, that when you get into certain fields, uh, as in physics or um, astronomy, that there's a high percentage of people that believe in God, as opposed to, say, the biological sciences. Uh, how many astronomers are there compared to biologists in the world today? Well, it is true that the majority of scientists will declare we see no scientific evidence for God. Um, but that's predominantly in the life sciences. And, you know, they far outnumber those of us in the physical sciences. There's only about 12,000 research astronomers in the whole world, but there's over 3 million research biologists. Now, in astronomy, our data comes from the past. It takes time for light to travel from stars and galaxies to our telescope, whereas biologists predominantly do their research in the here and now. 
And what does it tell us in Genesis 1? For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he rests from his work of creation so he can focus on the problem of evil. That's what happens in day seven. God is removing all evil and suffering. And an eighth day will come when he creates again. But this is the day of rest, which means if a scientist is doing research in the human era, he will see no scientific evidence for God's supernatural intervention. All he's going to see is natural process. Of course, God's at rest. Notice, too, what it says in Genesis 1. There's an evening and a morning for the first six days. The creation days have a start point and an end point, but you'll see no evening and morning for day seven. And New Testament authors actually speak about God's seventh day as an event that's still ongoing. So we're now in God's seventh day of rest. And the reason why so many physicists and mathematicians and astronomers believe, in fact, the majority of them believe, is the fact that they're getting their data from the past when God is actively intervening. So we see the handiwork of God everywhere. I mean, Paul Davies, an agnostic physicist, wrote a book, The Cosmic Blueprint, where he declared the evidence for design is overwhelming. It's overwhelming when you look at the six days. It's absent when you look at day seven. But God will create again once he overcomes evil. Tell me, do, why do people feel this conflict between science and the Bible? And is it a necessary conflict between the two? Well, there's this perceived conflict. In fact, whenever I give lectures on scientific evidence for God where I'm in a debate or a forum with an atheist uh, scientist, they immediately jump to Genesis 1. They're convinced that the biblical creation accounts flatly contradict what we see in the record of nature. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is how they fail to follow the steps of the scientific method. Now, I was taught the scientific method every year in my public school education in Canada, but nobody told us where the scientific method came from. If you pick up Genesis 1, the first two steps of the scientific method are right there in verses 1 and 2. Step 1, do not interpret until you establish the frame of reference or the point of view. Step two, don't interpret until you establish the starting conditions. Notice what it says with respect to the six days in Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. In other words, we're being told the story of the six days from the point of view of an observer on the surface of Earth's waters, below the clouds, now, these atheists I debate predominantly have the point of view of God up in the heavens looking down on the earth. With that point of view, virtually everything in Genesis 1 is scientific nonsense. But if you put the point of view on the surface of the earth, then it transforms it into one of the strongest evidences that the Bible must be the inspired and errant word of God. Because if you have that point of view, and by the way, the starting conditions... It tells us it's dark on the surface of the waters. The waters cover the whole surface of the earth, and it's unfit for life, and it's empty of life. Those are the starting conditions. Then we got the six days. With those initial conditions and that point of view, the events that you see in the six days are all correctly described and all in the correct chronological sequence. Now... As a young man, I looked at over a hundred different creation stories and myths in the different religions of the world. 
the one that comes the closest to the Bible in terms of its scientific accuracy is the Enuma Elisha, the Babylonians. It gets 2 out of 14 right. The Bible gets 10 for 10 on the creation events and 4 for 4 on the initial conditions. That degree of perfection can only be explained if the one that created everything actually told Moses what the story was and had him write it down in such a way that it would be error-free. So Genesis 1 was something that brought me to faith in Christ. But it's, it's so interesting that when I meet unbelievers, it's usually Genesis 1 that keeps them away from the Christian faith. But it's all because they don't follow what I call the biblical testing method. I mean, the scientific method comes right out of the pages of Scripture. The scientific method was discovered by Reformation scholars reading the Bible. It's no accident the scientific revolution exploded out of Reformation Europe. But just like we need to use that method to do uh, appropriate scientific research, we also need to use that method to properly interpret the Bible. In fact, it was Galileo who said in his court trial, the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to fail to identify the frame of reference or the point of view. So just that one little correction makes all the difference in how you read and understand the text. Did I get that right about the whole thing about Job setting up Genesis? And I don't want to cheat and get into 11.11 service quite yet. I'm trying to discipline myself not to. But that you see Job, when you understand Job is predating uh, Genesis with regard, that, that that is a helpful thing with regard to the Very context of Genesis. because it's explicit where Genesis 1 is implicit. I mean, okay, you've got these initial conditions, and you've got creation day one, let there be light. Notice it doesn't use the word create or make. It says, let there be light. Well, you know, that's God transforming the atmosphere of the earth so that no longer is it opaque, it's translucent. Now, I must confess I had a bit of an advantage. As an astronomy student, I knew all planets the size of the earth or bigger begin with opaque atmospheres. Venus still has an opaque atmosphere. Our atmosphere is now 100 times less thick than it was when it was first formed. And so it was that transformation that allowed the light to pass through so the photosynthesis could begin. Now, this is explicit in the book of Job. Job 37, 38, and 39 take you through the six creation days of Genesis 1. In the context of creation day 1, what does the text say? Job 38, verse 9, uh, that God blanketed the seas with clouds that enshrouded the seas in darkness. So there it's explicit. The reason why it's dark on the surface of the waters is because the atmosphere was opaque to light. But then creation day 1, God transforms that atmosphere so now light can pass through. And in creation day four, where it says, let there be the great lights, that's when the atmosphere becomes transparent for the first time. And what I notice at age 17, reading Genesis 1, all the life previous to the fourth day doesn't need to know where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky. If you're a plant or a bacterium, it makes no difference. But all the light that you see in day five and day six needs, at least on occasion, to see the position of the sun, moon, and stars in the sky so that they can regulate their biological clocks. So it's the fourth day uh, when, for the first time, observers on the surface of the earth can actually see the objects that are responsible for the light. So overcast for the first three days, 
day four, uh, the clouds break, and uh, now everything you see in Genesis 1 is in a perfect uh, sequence with respect to the book of nature, and everything is correctly described. And if you go to the book of Job, it describes it in far more detail. So we actually get more evidence uh, for the scientific inspiration of the Bible and the creation text in Job than you do in Genesis 1. I love how you say that Job and his friends there, uh, when you read it, you just think, oh, you know, his friends are off and, and they're, you know, totally off theologically, and they are with regard to much of suffering. But you said it was like the greatest convocation of the brain, greatest minds of that time. When they get together and those friends have the debate with Job, these are the geniuses of their time, really giving us a lot of information that is... Yeah, there's it, actually words that are used in the book of Job that tell you that these are the brilliant men of that time. In fact, I argue that this is the greatest recorded debate in the history of humanity, greater than any debate we've heard today. But what's interesting is that these five brilliant men, none of them question the existence of God. That's one point that they all agreed on, that you know, the God that we see in the Bible is actually... I mean, they debated about what God does in terms of relating to human beings, but there's no question about his existence. And we'll talk about that why it was that all the brilliant men at that time had no question about the existence of God and why that's not true for brilliant men today. They're living in a different situation. Wow. Okay, we'll sneak into that next time. Back at 8.30, I'm cheating now and going back to that, but you did just mention the planets and how they had a role in this. You've said that we're the perfect planet with the perfect solar system, with the perfect galaxy, in, in the perfect spot in the universe. Just Could you just mention a little bit more about fine-tuning? I love fine-tuning. That's like one of my favorite things, and I just want to cheat a little bit and bring some of that from the last service in again. But even our location in the solar system and the location of the solar system, all of that is all perfectly fine-tuned for us. Well, this is actually an ongoing test amongst astronomers who are believers and those who are not believers. I mean, it was Hawking that proposed the test. He said, you know, if there is no God, we're going to find many planets like Earth, they'll be capable of sustaining advanced life. We're going to find many galaxies like our own, which would be an appropriate life site uh, for life. So what we've been doing at Reasons to Believe is putting that to the test. We have found now nearly a 1,000 planets outside of our solar system. None of them are Earth-like. We do find ones that have liquid water on them. The problem is they've got way too much water, about 500 times as much water as the Earth. Too much water is a bad thing because you won't get continents. That's the beauty of planet Earth. It's got a very thin layer of water, a very thin atmosphere. So, yeah, we are finding Goldilocks planets where water is possible, but they're not able to sustain advanced life. We can't find a single galaxy that's sufficiently like our own that would be a candidate for advanced life. Everything is proving to be unique. Many stars are twins of one another, but there is no twin of the sun. And so this would be evidence that God is the one that designed our galaxy, our cluster of galaxies, uh, our solar system. You know, this, all these planets we have found, not only are we not finding a twin of the Earth, we can't find a twin of any solar system planet. And that discovery has led us to recognize every planet in our solar system plays a role in making advanced life possible here on planet Earth. Now, I don't know what you do on Thanksgiving Day, but our family, we thank God for Neptune. We thank God for Mars, for Mercury. So We do, too, <laughs> at our house. 
<laughs> no, we thank him for the coming Packers victory in the football game. That's what we usually thank him for. So, no, that's cool. That's, did I hear you say that too much water makes the universe struggle with continents? Is that what I heard you say? That? Well, that's a middle. That's a middle-aged man question. I just thought that was very interesting. Right Different kind of continents. Okay, okay. I was just, I was just. Well, you know, I love your facts that you put on this. I just, I just got so much out of this right here, and I wanted to highlight a couple of these and have you expand on it. Life originated in a geological instance in the absence of any prebiotics or any possible natural means to produce exclusively left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars. Would you explain that a little more? I'm, uh, I didn't catch that right off the bat. Well, it's interesting that, so, yeah. <clears throat> that when you debate biologists on the existence of God, they want to talk about the fossil record and life that we have right around, but they do not want to talk about the origin of life. The origin of life is the best understood issue in biological history. It's the simplest, but it's also incredibly compelling evidence for the supernatural explanation for the origin of life. Because you just read there, we now have physical evidence that planet Earth never had prebiotics. If you don't have prebiotics, you don't even have the building blocks for life. If you've got no building blocks, you've got no possibility for a naturalistic model. And we also realize the origin of life happened very quickly, not over a long period of time, but very quickly. Uh, no time and no building blocks means no naturalistic model. And when we go to origin of life research conferences, I mean, we're typically the only Christians at the conference. Uh, and what you see at every successive meeting, it gets more depressing. When we go to scientific meetings, there's usually a crackling of excitement about how we're getting greater understanding. For origin of life conferences, the opposite, because they recognize with every meeting, it's becoming more impossible to come up with any possible naturalistic explanation. I remember going to one meeting where a scientist came up to the microphone and said, this past week, we've eliminated the Earth as a possible candidate for the origin of life. We've eliminated all the solar system planets and bodies. We've eliminated planets outside of our solar system. And we've eliminated rocks bringing us stuff here. The only possible explanation left is that aliens from another planet came in spaceships and brought life here to planet Earth. And I kind of nudged my colleague, our Fazrana, our biochemist, and said, they're getting close to the right answer. It is an alien, but not an alien from another planet. <laughs> that, that is cool. Yeah, I don't know if you remember Larry Norman, the, the long-haired blonde guy, singer here from uh, uh, California. And he's an unidentified object. You will see him in the air. He's an unidentified object. You will drop your hands and stare. And so he is that alien that came and an alien, though, that revealed life. himself in this revealed book, Revealed right? himself in this book. That yeah. is so That is so cool. So you're saying that, that, that snap when it went from an inanimate object to life, that is the thing that it's just harder and harder to explain, even from scientists as time goes on. Well, our argument with these biologists is that there's no natural explanation of the origin of life. Then why do you think there's a natural explanation for the far more complex steps that take place after the origin of life? Now, a lot of our research, we talk about the Cambrian explosion. We just did a big conference on the Cambrian explosion. And that's another example where atheists look at this sudden eruption of all these different yeah, animal forms Explain the Cambrian explosion. Just, uh, well, that's an event uh, where you literally get 
88% of all the mathematically possible skeletal structures of animal life showing up all at the same time. They just come out of nowhere. In fact, it was Richard Dawkins says that these animals come out of nowhere with no evolutionary history. Well, that's what you'd expect if God was responsible for that uh, Canberra explosion. And what I notice as a physicist, the moment that oxygen reaches the minimum level to make animal life possible, everything shows up. So there's no time lag. As soon as oxygen hits that level, bingo, you see the Cambrian explosion. And likewise, when we talk about advanced large-bodied mammals, they require 20% oxygen, not just 10%. But as soon as it hits 20%, they're created. So there's no time lag. There's no time lag for the origin of life. The earliest moment that life is conceivably possible, it shows up right away. And that's something a number of atheists have pointed out is that it happens way too early from a naturalistic perspective. But it's God packing the earth with as much life as possible. Psalm 104 tells us that, that God has packed the earth with as much life as possible, as diverse and as long as possible. Why? So we'll have all the biodeposit resources we need to quickly fulfill the reason why God created us, which is to take the good news of Jesus Christ to all the people groups of the world. God knew we would need technology to do that. And therefore, he gave us this long history of life. So we'd have all the coal, oil, limestone, natural gas, steel. I mean, it's bacteria that made all the metal ores that we mined. That's another thing we thank God for at uh, Thanksgiving. (laughs) All the sulfate-reducing bacteria that made it possible for us to have cutlery at our Thanksgiving table. Do you ever get to the food at all at Thanksgiving? Yeah, we thank God for that, too. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) That... Oh, God. Well, this is really a far off, so I hope this is okay. But another thing I've heard that is a great struggle and is almost, as you would call it, a self-defeater uh, for the atheist position is not only is it difficult, if not impossible, to explain that jump to life, but the jump to consciousness. And I know we're in a different realm now then, but explain that, how one of the greatest struggles is to explain con- the, the mere fact that we are conscious. Well, as if you really want to break this down into something very simple. The principles of cause and effect, which pervade all the sciences, which basically say uh, the effect comes after the cause, and the effects cannot be greater than the causes. You cannot get the greater from the lesser. You know, here are atheists claiming that we human beings came from something that is no mind, no life, no consciousness, no emotions, uh, no spirit. How can that, which lacks life, consciousness, spirit, mind, intelligence, knowledge, create beings that have all those qualities? I mean, a single human being is greater than 50 billion trillion stars. Those stars are nothing but giant balls of gas. They're not alive. They have no consciousness. They have no mind. And so that's kind of the greatest struggle for the atheists, trying to explain the origin of the human mind, the human consciousness, life, and spirit. Because from their perspective, that came from something that lacks all those properties. It violates the principle of cause and effect. So, yeah, if you want a, you know, a one-minute argument for God, there you got it. And, and how about, I'm going now into philosophical realm, but the whole idea of morality. I know that evolutionists have been working to find um, reasons for altruism. But at first glance, it would seem like, uh, to, you know, Jesus' ethic to lay down your life for your friends is very poor evolutionary theory, you know, in, in the sense of what 
advantages that is to to your gene pool. So morality, how do you see that as affirming a moral God that we come from as well as a conscious God? Well, you look God? at we human beings. I mean, you see that we humans are incredibly immoral. Um, many of us immoral far beyond what would be to our personal advantage. I mean, this is the thing about Hitler, is that he did things that were not to his advantage because of the inherent evil within him. Um, but also we see human beings doing incredible acts of sacrifice for people that they don't know who can't possibly benefit them. We human beings, in one context, are too moral to be the product of random natural processes. We're also too immoral to be the product. And so, you know, atheists will often say, if there's a good God, then why is there evil? There's way too much evil for there not to be a good God opposed by a supernatural evil being. The evil we see in humanity cannot be explained by any Darwinian principles. There's too much of it. But neither can the good that we see in humanity be explained by Darwinian principles. There's way too much, as you say, altruism. Uh, you know, the atheists will say, well, we do good things because eventually they'll benefit us. But, you know, the problem is you see human beings sacrificing for people that can never possibly benefit them uh, or their uh, descendants. We're too good. We're also too evil at the same time. And therefore, there must be a supernatural struggle between good and evil that's going on. So it's a proof for God, but it's also a proof for Satan. I want to read the last one in this paragraph as well. The probability that Darwinian mechanisms would produce humans from single-cell organisms is virtually zero. Could you expand on that concept? Well, a famous uh, evolutionary biologist at UC Irvine that did that calculation at a conference, Francisco Ayala, and he was speaking to a group of astronomers looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, he said, well, we all agree that the first life forms were bacterial, unicellular bacteria. Using the most optimistic Darwinian principles, assuming the greatest possible efficiency in biological evolution, what's the probability you're going to wind up with intelligent life? And he said, what he was pointing out is that these Darwinian principles always favor simplicity over complexity. He calculated the probability was less than one chance in 10 to the one millionth power that beginning with cells, you'd wind up with the functional equivalent of human beings. And then with three physicists at that conference said, no, wait a minute, Francisco. You assume that conditions in the solar system never change. We know they change. Your probability is less than one chance in 10 to the 24 millionth power. Well, to put that probability in context, it would be the same as a probability of you winning the California lottery three million consecutive times where you buy one ticket each time. Or as what one mathematician friend of mine said, it's the same probability as if you bought no tickets at all. So, (laughs) But, you know, Ayala's point was this. We know for sure there is no intelligent life elsewhere in the universe because this probability is so incredibly tiny. I mean... There's only 10 to the 79 protons and neutrons in the entire universe. So this is far more remote than that you could pick out a single March proton out of all the protons in the universe. But what Francisco Ayala wasn't facing up to was that that same probability calculation he developed proves that we are impossible unless a supernatural entity created us. 
Wow. And, uh, and then you were at the last service using those same kind of probabilities with regard to fine-tuning in the universe from an astronomer and physicist's point of view, but now you're talking to the biologist. The two problems on either side, whether it's macro or whether it's micro, is still... Well, what's interesting Impossible. about today is that the latest books being published by atheist scientists are conceding that they cannot avoid a deistic interpretation of reality. Some kind of God must exist. The debate now is on the personality of God. They believe God has no personality. We Christians believe that he does. But the very evidences we're talking about on biology and the universe show that God must be a personal being. He's not just an entity beyond space and time. He's a being that's personal, far more personal than any of us human beings, and is a God that's totally uh, good. I mean, we find no fault in him at all. Everything we see in, in the design of the universe is optimized. I mean, if you look at these mass speciation events in the fossil record, you see all these millions of species of life showing up on the earth, immediately with optimized ecological relationships. The evolutionary model would say that's going to take hundreds of millions of years to develop. What we see is it shows up right away. So it's God not only creating, but creating at the optimal level every single time. By, by the environment, you mean they, as soon as they're created, they're in an area where they can survive and, and thrive? Well, what I'm talking about is how the carnivores, the herbivores, the parasites, the detrivores, they're all in an optimal relationship with one another. So the quality of life for all species is optimized. The longevity of life is optimized. And the amount of biological resources is optimized. And we're the beneficiaries of all that optimization. Wow, wow. Okay, this is torture to stop, but the beauty is we're going to keep it going in half an hour. We're going to close it off. I've just been disciplining myself not to get into the kind of things you talk about here and with regard to the animal kingdom and what the animals tell us, their, their role in, in uh, helping us. So I'm really looking forward to at 11.11 service getting into the whole thing about ask the beasts and the animals. That's going to be fascinating. There's actually a gospel being taught to us through the animals. A gospel through the animals. I knew my St. Bernard Millie was uh, a prophet in our home. I just, uh, I love that dog. And so this is going to be, although you say the domesticated animals, not as much as like the cows and, and things like that. So the cows I grew up with on our family farm actually will teach me more than our dogs. Is that right? Well, that and a bunch more animals. Okay, we'll get into that. We'll get into that then. Uh, Dr. Russ, I want to give you a quick chance for commercial at the end. So tell us again this card here. Uh, that I showed earlier that's inserted there in your program. People can just fill that out, turn it in, and, they'll, and you'll give them this for free. Well, yeah, tear it off because we want you to keep this little card here, which kind of gives you very quickly the best scientific evidences for God. But yeah, if you tear it off and fill it out, uh, we'll give you free this DVD, right okay. Cosmic uh, Fingerprints. And the reason why we're giving it away, we want you to use it as an outreach tool. This has been one of our most effective things uh, for bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, we, I'm recommending this as well. Uh, the Skeptic Society sells this for $30. We sell it for 5 We want you to see what happens uh, okay. uh, when these evidences are given in front of a very hostile, highly educated audience. Wow. And, of course, there's the books that people can use. And what we're really recommending is give them to non-Christians. You know, plant a seed. 
and uh, be ready to give good reasons. Could we thank Dr. Ross for being with us here today? Oh, my goodness. Thank this you. is good. Good. Thank you. Good And um, Dr. Ross will be here at the front. Uh, there's also the question and answer luncheon later right, on. If you, right. there's still, it's limited to the first 200 people that sign up for that. Um, don't let the financial part of that hold you back. Just, just, it's just a suggested donation. We don't want that money part to hold anybody back. Just do it, and I'll make up the difference, okay? Because I really want you to get a chance to ask him your questions at the end of the day. They hear me pray all the time. Why don't you close us in prayer? Sure. Okay? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege of being alive in the 21st century uh, when your book of nature is revealing so much about your handiwork, uh, the righteousness that we see declared uh, through the heavens. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would help each one of us uh, to obey the command we see in Peter's letter, to always be ready with good reasons for the hope within us but to be ready to deliver them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. So as we go away from here, Lord, help us to find those reasons, uh, to develop those reasons so we can present them comfortably. But I also pray, Father, that uh, we would submit to one another, uh, both Christians and non-Christians, and to get their critique so that day by day we can become more gentle, more respectful, more compassionate, uh, that people would look at our demeanor in our very demeanor, they would see the Holy Spirit working within us and a testimony of the work and power of Jesus Christ, our Creator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Very good.